Thank you for listening to another episode of the Jude 3 Project podcast. I'm Lisa Fields, the president and founder of the Jude 3 Project, and I'm so excited that you're tuning in. We're going to dive into another week of talking about sexuality. This one is a Courageous Conversations from our recent um, Courageous Conversation Conference 2019 that happened on August 1st and 2nd in Atlanta, Georgia. This is Paul Sexual Ethics. Uh, a conversation between Dr. Esau McCauley, Dr. Angela Parker, Dr. Margaret Amer, and Ernest Gray, and also moderated by Corey Porter. I hope you enjoy this. Also, thank you to our monthly partners. I'm so thankful for you. And if you would like to become a monthly partner to help us in funding the mission and vision of the Jude 3 Project, you could do so by going to jude3project.org and hitting that donate tab. There's an option to donate by mail, so the address will be available, or you could donate online. You could be a one-time giver or a monthly giver. Thank you so much. I greatly, greatly appreciate it, and I hope you enjoy this courageous conversation. God bless. Hello, welcome to the Jew 3 Project podcast. I'm your host, Lisa Fields. I'm the founder of the Jew 3 Project. Framing it in today's climate, and in today's climate, as you guys know, the conversation when it comes to gender, there's fluality with conversations of sexual orientation, as well as... I don't have a mic. She don't have a mic. Oh, oh, I did it. (laughs) Oh, Esau. Forgive me. Esau, already starting trouble. Already, already. Well, got the nerves out the way. Uh, Again, this conversation, we come to it with the seriousness of understanding the climate in today's society. Um, we see a society today that is debating about sexual orientation, its fluality, as well as um, gender and its way it, it comes about. So when we think about these things in the light of the Me Too movement, as well as we think about hot topics around rape culture, um, we want to make sure that we frame this as a church with the urgency of bringing the text to bear. So this conversation today will be seeking through understanding how Paul uses in his epistles and his literature and addressing sexual ethics. So we want to just open it up today and make sure the panels are able to uh, introduce themselves. So we start this way. Uh, so good afternoon, folks. Thank you for being here at this, the last panel. My name is Reverend Dr. Angela Parker. I am the new assistant professor of New Testament and Greek at Mercer University's McAfee School of Theology here in Atlanta. So I've just moved to Atlanta. I've been here about 32 days, so praise God. And my personal pronouns are she, her, and hers. And I say that because I think that's part of the conversation that we're going to get into. One of my experiences was misgendering a student when I was teaching and then having that student come up to me and with tears in her eyes because I misgendered her. As we were reading Pauline text, as we were engaging this conversation, and as she was feeling traumatized as a result of reading Pauline text and engaging this conversation. Hello, my name's Esau McCauley, like Jacqueline, sorry, I called you Jacqueline, Angela. <laughs> like Angela, I just started a new job. I'm the assistant professor of New Testament at Wheaton College, and so I've been there for about a month. Mm-hmm. And I think it's important, since we're kind of framing this conversation, is because I'm going to represent something of the traditional side, that 
what I'm going to say isn't going to satisfy everybody, but I need to make this part clear. The thing that I don't think is up for debate in this particular context is the fact that we believe that all people are image bearers. And that for that reason, there were their respect. And so I know that sometimes any disagreement around this area is seen as a personal attack. And for those who receive it as a personal attack, I'm going to apologize up front for the emotional work you're going to have to do. Because I know that there's people who have same-sex attraction who identify as gay and lesbian, transgender, and the rest um, that are in this room, or people who have family who have those experiences who are in this room. So I want to say I understand that. But also know that people who experience same-sex attraction who are hoping to hear some articulation of Paul that makes their sacrifice of celibacy or however they're trying to pursue holiness, coherent. And so I'm going to do the best that I can to do that. And God bless everybody who's listening. Because I know for a lot of people, this is a tough listen. So I just want to say that out front. And thank you. Amen. Good afternoon. Good afternoon. Good afternoon, church. Good afternoon. <laughs> Good afternoon. <laughs> My name is the Reverend Dr. Margaret Amer. My title is First Presbyterian Church Shreveport D. Thomason Professor of New Testament at Austin Presbyterian Theological Seminary in Austin, Texas, where I have served for four years. I'm entering my fifth year after having served as Professor of New Testament Associate and Assistant Levels here in Atlanta at the Interdenominational Theological Center. I'm an ordained Presbyterian minister, PCUSA, as a I were PCA, I would not be ordained. <laughs> um, and I do have skin in this fight in that I am the sister of a woman who is married to an Episcopal priest who happens to be a woman. Um, so I have a clergy sister-in-law who happens to be a lesbian. Um, so that's where I start my conversation is with my lived experience in my family. Um, and my, my work is in the, primarily in the Epistle of James, but they let me talk about Paul. <laughs> Good afternoon. My name is Ernest Gray, and um, I teach New Testament at Moody Bible Institute. I've taught there for the past 12 years now, and my uh, educational journey began here in Atlanta in 1995. I was a student at Morehouse College, and I stayed here for two years, and this was my home church. This is Pastor Flippin was my pastor, and so shout out to Pastor Flippin and for the covering that they provided me for those two years. I returned to Chicago, finished at Moody, and uh, continued on to do my master's at Wheaton College, uh, completed my coursework and PhD work uh, without a dissertation at the McMaster Divinity College in Hamilton, Ontario. And uh, I, am, I am not a Pauline scholar, I'm a Petrine scholar. But I am um, I'm, I'm intrigued by Paul, his language, and I'm just um, thankful to be able to contribute uh, some, somewhat, hopefully something, to this conversation and my experience. I also pastor a church on the west side of Chicago, a little small Baptist church in West Garfield Park uh, in Chicago in a really divested area. So I'm uh, trying to balance the academic work with some uh, clay, keep my feet to the ground in doing the work uh, in a local church. Amen. So when we, I'm just going to jump right into it. <laughs> the first question that's up, just for time's sake, when we think about the Word of God, we think about it having 66 books running through a corpora of different literary devices, different literary structures, and of those 66 books, you have about 40 different authors. And of those 40 different authors, only one is probably as seen as very controversial, which is Paul and his sexual ethics. 
So when we think that through, when you look at the Pauline literature, how do you think that Paul describes a healthy sexual human relationship using his own language and text? Sure, my thoughts are this. I think that you could draw a straight line between Palestinian Judaism and the, um, the traditions that Paul inherits uh, from his forebearers, his, um, the rabbis that he was studying under. And I think you could draw a straight line from the Levitical kind of holiness codes component all the way straight through to what he says about uh, human sexuality and what he sees as inbound and out of bound. For him, I think clearly embedded in his mind is this, is this gestalt that he has um, seen it as one of two options that I think need to be nuanced, of course. He, of course, was married at some point, but I think that for some reason he uh, was uh, he chose the, the life of celibacy, that, that's up for debate, but nevertheless, celibacy won and heterosexual um, marriage, male, female, and complementarity. Those two things seem to be the, the majority of the ways in which he sees uh, human sexuality kind of played out. Most of what Paul writes about human sexuality has to do with circumcision and the condition mm -hmm. of a man's penis. If you look at the Pauline corpus, the, the seven books that we are pretty sure Paul wrote, that, that's the bulk of what he's writing about. And the, and the reason for this, and I'm not saying that to be controversial, I'm saying that because the reason for this is that is a sexual question for Paul. Mm -hmm. That is very much a sexual question within the Roman context in which Paul is writing. Um, and we can trace Paul's sexual ethics through Judaism, but we can also trace it through Roman Stoicism and through the way in which the empire thought about marriage, right? So when you look at the way that the empire thinks about masculinity, when you look at the way the Romans think about masculinity throughout, circumcision was one of the biggest issues in the church. It actually divided the church more than anything else. And the issue was whether or not a man was whole. Within the Roman society, mm -hmm. if you were circumcised, you were less than a human being. You were less than a man. And so this argument, but, but, but if you're a Jew and you're not circumcised, and Paul is making the theological argument that Gentiles are not just saved by Christ, but that Gentiles somehow through Christ become part of Abraham's covenant, thus become Israel, mm -hmm. right? So Paul is making that argument and saying, but you don't have to be circumcised. This is at the heart of the primary sexual discussion that Paul is having. Now, the secondary sexual discussion I think Paul is having has to do with what do we do until Jesus comes back, which should happen any minute now. Mm -hmm. And for Paul, since Jesus is going to come back any minute now, there's no point in engaging in sexual activity at all. That's Paul's entire argument about celibacy. Jesus is coming back tomorrow. Sex gets you thinking about something other than God. Forget sex and be celibate. Then, if we go further, then he goes to the question of heterosexual marriage if you're dying for it. Okay? Then he makes this argument in Romans 1, because we're going to have to deal with Romans 1, so might as well put it on the table, um, about where same gender attraction comes from. And his essential argument is God made people gay because of idolatry. 
That is the bulk of his argument. Because they exchanged the image of God for a created order. God made people gay because of idol worship. And he sees that as against nature. Now, we can question Paul's understanding of nature because he also thinks short hair on women is unnatural and long hair on men is unnatural. And Reverend Al may have something to say about that. But um, so, so Paul has this whole question of what nature is. And he sees same-sex attractiveness among men as an act of God in punishment for Gentile, meaning our, idolatry. So here is one of the questions I think we need to put on the table as we think about this discussion. If in fact this is how God makes people gay according to Paul, which is what he says in Romans 1, then what do we say to the child of the church who was raised in the church, went to Sunday school, grew up singing in the children's choir, danced in the dance ministry, was part of the youth movement, was, was preaching from the pulpit at 11 and 12, and she or he comes to you and says, Pastor, Pastor, why do I feel this way? Are you going to look at that child and say, well, Paul says God made you gay because of idolatry. And that child will look at you and say, Pastor, I've never worshipped an idol a day in my life. So as we talk about Paul's sexual ethics, that's the way in which I begin to frame these discourses. We read Romans 1 a little bit differently, but I'm going <laughs> to hold off on that and actually um, answer the question. Maybe, hopefully we'll get a chance to come back around to Romans 1. But I'll just say it as a marker. I don't think that Paul is talking about an individual's march towards same-sex attraction. I think he's talking about the the entire story of creation, speaking of man's original obedience and all of the sins that he is talking about is not the journey of an individual, but what happens when humanity turns against God. And so it's not the case, well, I guess I'll answer it now. It's not the case, <laughs> it's, not, it's not the case that I think Paul is saying that in the present moment, anyone, that same-sex attraction is the result of idolatry. What he is saying, and, and the reason that I say there's creation language in there, because he refers to God as creator as, at the begin, beginning of it. And he talks about the four-footed beast, and he talks about the exchanging of the glory of God. And so it seems to me that he's not telling the story of an individual, but he's telling the story of humanity's rebellion. He's using same-sex attraction as one manifestation of human brokenness, not Anytime someone has same-sex attraction, it's because of idolatry. I think he's using same-sex attraction as one manifestation of human brokenness, of which there are many that he gets to at the end. So we, I know we'll talk more about Romans 1, but I, but I want to say, if you want to talk about Paul's actual sexual ethic, I think that if we begin the question with what does Paul say about who can and can't have sex, I think we're going to end up with a, an endless argument around some of those details, which are important. But I think that Paul's own theology begins with the cross. And he speaks about how even his Jewish identity, he said, all of the things that I had as a Jew, I count as loss for the surpassing worth to knowing Jesus Christ my Lord, for whom I've suffered the loss of all things, and I count them as rubbish. And so Paul also says that I've been crucified to the world, right, and the world to me, and the life that I now live, I live by faith in the Son of God. And so Paul thinks that all of Christian theology begins with experiencing a death to the world in light of the surpassing work of knowing what Jesus Christ is. And so everything that Paul does, including his sexuality, has to be rethought through 
the lens of the cross. And so how does knowing what Jesus Christ is worth affect my perception of how I live out my sexual life? And so any sacrifices, we will agree on this part, any sacrifices that, it, that, that are called for the Christian to make, heterosexual or same sex, are seen in light of the worth of Christ. Mm-hmm. And so if we begin this question with like, who, how do we think about Paul's sexual ethics there? I think it has to say, how does the cross for me as a Christian impact how I, I want to live on my sexuality? And so I will begin with that. And then if you want to say, well, then how does Paul then describe or where are some places to look for Paul's sexual ethic. I would start in places like um, 1 Corinthians 7, where Paul uses the language of mutuality, where he says to the man that the body is not your own. And, and you spoke about the, do- the dominance of the Roman male, where you can have sex with anybody. Yeah. That's, how, that's what it meant to be at the top of society. If you could have sex with slaves, you can have sex with men, you can have sex with, with boys who have lesser status. And Paul's saying to the, the, the man in power, that your body belongs to a woman who in that society had no power is the beginning of what I think of Paul's sexual it's revolution. It's a great corrective. It's the me. idea that, that it becomes this, this thing of mutuality where it's not simply about the person who has power dominating the weak, but it's about man and woman together in reciprocal, respectful relationships. So that's where I'll begin. I agree in part and disagree in part. And so I, I hear the, well, let me go back to this. First thing I want to point out, why are we asking a celibate man about his ethics when we're living right now in these United States of America? So the whole question and the conversation of who has the power to interpret Paul, who has the power to say this is what Paul meant and this is what you should do for your churches, actually that, that whole question needs to be interrogated first, but we don't have time to do that. We can interrogate it. Yeah, we can <laughs> Let me, let me, yeah, that's all right. So the other piece is when we think about the Romans one text and you're, you're both rightly bringing up the Roman imperial context, but if you're thinking through the Roman imperial context, you're thinking through that power dynamic and you're thinking through the, the top down power, but it's also going into this idea of worship and this idea of family. And so I think with that idea of worship and that idea of family, especially if you look at what the people would have seen in Rome, such as the Arapacus. And you have the empire who is leading the family and saying, we're going to go do this worship. And he is the emperor. So Google the Arapacus and look at the images that this emperor is leading this family and it's a fake family. That's the thing. It's a fake family and it's all about this imperial worship. So that by the time you get to Romans 12, he's talking about true worship. And so I think that Anytime you're trying to emulate and imitate the emperor's family, then you become problematic. Now, what this means for me is that as African Americans being in churches, anytime we try to imitate white patriarchal family, it becomes problematic. So I just went to a whole bunch of different things, but that's what I wanted to get to first because part of the question is how do we imitate white 
patriarchal families so that we can have our own respectability as black folks in these United States of America. So that if I'm trying to imitate white patriarchal family, then if I'm imitating white patriarchal family, I'm going to be like white patriarchy and say that this is wrong, especially if you're in a conservative evangelical white church, that this is wrong, same-sex attraction is wrong, that this is wrong, that's wrong. And so that becomes problematic because we become a part of what we see in Romans 1 and don't get into relationality because you've hit it rightly with the first Corinthians 7 piece about how you relate to one another. Where's your relationality at? And I do think it's part of that cross conversation. What's the wisdom of the cross say to how we relate to one another? I think we take it a step further when we get people out of that relationality and say, you can't do this, you can't do that. I'd rather be on the side of where's the love and justice of, of allowing people to be together if they are in that relationality. I think, I think it's important to understand that I recognize the, the weight of white supremacy, but rhetorically, that's kind of a burden too heavy for me to bear to kind of feel like I gotta, on some sense, defend white patriarchy if I'm going to have a traditional reading of Paul. Because I think, I think that it is possible to say the following. And I think that Paul is saying this. I think it is, in, however we come down on Paul, I think it is a little bit unfair to accuse Paul of trying to emulate the Roman family, especially when he speaks in particular about how Caesar exercises power and how Jesus, as the true Lord, undercuts the entire imperial propaganda. Because Hmm. Caesar operates his power, and Paul says that we preach Christ crucified, that it's foolishness to the empire. And he, he says they speak about peace and security, but their peace and security is false. And so when Paul says Jesus is Lord, it is a counter-imperial message. And so the idea that... But Paul power, still tries to keep his power in the midst of all that. I mean, it's easy. I mean, well... <laughs> See, we, we, she said, she said it was going to be one of those. <laughs> but this, here's my thing is that I think regardless of I don't want to finish this idea that it, it is possible that some of the readings that we have of Paul comes to black Christians in the United States and globally, honestly, and mm -hmm. they're not always manifestation of internalizing colonialization. That's true. So, I mean, we can still be wrong. We can still be wrong. So black people thinking it doesn't, doesn't make it right, but it's not always internalizing colonialization. And because we begin as black people from broken families, I would hope, and we're not speaking of broken families, speaking of breaking out of families during, during slavery, I would hope that that would give us some sympathy towards some of the abuses of patriarchy, even though it doesn't always manifest it. But I want to say in the black community, because we have some sensitive, sensitivity to how power is exercised, hopefully it would impact how we talk about family a little bit differently. You know, it, we, it, we, it would, we would hope it does, mm -hmm. but in fact it doesn't. And that's the God's honest truth. We would hope it does, but in fact it doesn't. And if we look at the history of Jim Crow in this, in this country, realistically part of being black church and being and striving to survive in the midst of that horrific system was trying to create a level of black respectability right and that black respectability was there was a particular pain there was a particular ache that came from the way in which both enslavement because i don't like to call us slaves we were enslaved people, people. Right? Yeah, right. Um, but the way that enslavement and apartheid, because that's what Jim Crow was, mm -hmm. right? 
deracinated us from families, tore our families apart, made Paul's image in 1 Corinthians that much more something we long for, something we long to hold on to, right? Because we want to show the rest of the world that we are, in fact, not those shiftless, lazy, you-know-whats that all the white folks think we are. And we have black families, too. And we know how to be family together. And our men take care of our women. And our women respect our men, and so on and so forth. I don't start there. I start with Come Sunday. Mm -hmm. I start with a black man in Harlem whose partner for life has died, who sits down at the piano and pens one of the most poignant hymns of the black church come Sunday. Some of y'all don't know it. Duke Ellington. Mm. Lord, dear Lord above, God almighty, God of love, please look down and see my people through. Right? So that man was gay. That man right there was gay. And in fact, when Paul is talking about Romans 1, he's not just talking about all of creation and all of humanity. He's talking about a specific group of Gentiles. Mm -hmm. Romans is not a universal letter. Romans is written to the church in Rome. To the Gentiles in Rome who think they're better than the Jews in Rome because they're being persecuted by the Romans. And so Paul is writing a polemic. A polemic is when you do the dozens on someone. Yes. Okay? It's when he's saying, look at what all those nasty people over there do. He's writing a polemic about Gentiles. And he's saying, you know all those Gentiles over there? They should have known who God was. But look what they do. They go and worship these these oxen over here, these four-footed beasts over there. And so God turned them over to all sorts of nastiness. You know we have that kind of discourse, right? Friends, we are the Gentiles. We are not the Jews. So when Paul is looking at that polemic, he's talking about us. He's not talking about them. He's a Jew. He understands himself to be a Jew. Right? And then he has the miraculous statement of saying, and against what is natural. Same words as he says in Romans 1. What does God do? God takes this wild olive tree and grafts it into the cultivated tree. So so Paul is making a claim about who God can include. And what he's telling the Gentiles is, be careful, don't get up on your high horse. Because you know those Jews that you think are down there? If God can graft you in, God can graft them back in too. Because God is God and you are not. That's his primary argument in Romans. Neil Elliott's work, I know you know it. Um, Just footnoting, because you know we're academics. Uh, (laughs) That's his primary argument in Romans. Now, Paul is a source for my theology. And my my constructive theologians talk about what you know and how you know what you know. What your sources are and what you are constructing. So what I know is that God spoke to to, to Duke Ellington on the day that he wrote Come Sunday. I know it because God's spirit still speaks through that song today and it's been 100 years. I know because I have felt the spirit of God that gay people 
and lesbian people. I don't even know why we're talking about gays and lesbians when we're talking about Paul, because there's so much else to talk about with sexuality. <laughs> right? Um, sexual, well, because you raised it to begin with. Um, I know that God speaks to them because I felt it. And you have too. If you are honest with you, yourselves, every single person in this room has seen it and felt it. You know that. So then how do I attend to the source that is Paul to construct a theology about being gay? Now, for some people, that means, well, that means I need to be celibate. But you know what? That's for a gay person to decide. I'm straight. I'm not going to tell you from my place of privilege where I can walk down the street and flash my wedding ring, right, that you have to do that with your sexuality. That's not my job to tell you. That's between you and your God. My question is, what is God doing against nature in the church today? How, who are the Gentiles that are being grafted in against nature into the tree? Who are those folks we think that God has lopped off, that God can pick back up and grab back in anytime God wants to? Because that's Paul's arguments in Romans. I, um, I don't know if I so much would... See, I agree with you that the, the, the polemicization that Paul is doing, is it's, it's not just a program that he's involved in as it relates to this question, but it's its entire life for me. And, and when I read Paul, it is his, the, the cognitive dissonance that he has with what he inherited in the, you know, the circumcision, the dietary laws, and Sabbath keeping that he's trying to maintain. And I don't see that this is just a program relegated to just his sexual. Everything about Paul is being reevaluated in light of the cross. Yes. And so for me, when I look at this, it is, it is, it is a culture that is awash in all kinds of sexuality, right? We've already, we've already named that. We've already, we've already identified the various forms of sexuality. It seems that there was no holds barred. There was nothing holding back if you wanted to. I did not hear anything, but my reading of Paul, I can't recall any bestiality or anything like that. But it just seems like there was, it was the culture awash, not unlike the flattened out culture in which we live in today where everything is exposed for what it is. But that does not mean that that polemicization and him polemicizing against those things is it, is, it is his way of interacting with the cross and saying that I've got to yield here, I've got to yield here. And even my own sexuality is something that I'm going to yield to God so that he can help me sort this thing out. And I don't think that that's something that is a program. I don't, I don't think that that's something that, that Paul is trying to be cavalier about. I don't think he's trying, he's trying to be flippant. I just think that he's really, and I don't think that he's trying to take this male penis, this penis envy, this penis um, toting card around and, and using that as his, as his card to get him into spaces and to, and, to, and to domineer upon the people or even the churches that he's corresponding with. And so for me, I think that Paul is trying to do the good work of saying, how can I be holy in light of the fact that what I inherited here it just doesn't do it for me now because I left, I left that gate at Damascus, I met him on the road, and now I'm trying to figure out how to live out my life in a radically different kind of way. But, but, but I agree with you on that. I think he is exactly not toting around that penis thing. I mean, that's why I started with Galatians. I start with Galatians for two reasons. Number one, because of the, circum because of the, circumcision, because of the circumcision argument. Because the circumcision argument is really an argument not just about whether or not men are fully men. Because essentially, it, Rome actually passed a law that said you could not circumcise anyone who wasn't in your family. 
I mean, it was literally illegal to do that under the Roman Empire. This is how deep this was in Rome. But, but the issue is not just circumcision. The issue is covenant. Because Paul is making a huge argument about the cross. He's saying the cross enters you into the covenant of God. That's a huge argument. And what he's doing in doing that is saying, and all y'all Gentiles who are in complete violation of the law, whom the law, the Bible, because there is no New Testament, right? Right? The Bible says they are cut off from the people. This is the argument the church is having. The church is having in Paul an argument about what the Bible says and how to read the Bible. And Paul, in a very odd way, is saying, no, 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 no. But, you know, Gentiles don't have to do that because of what the cross has done. Because the cross has taken us way back past the man and woman thing. All the way back to the androgene that was created before we were divided into sex. That's what it says in Galatians. There's neither Jew nor Greek, slave nor free, man and woman. It changes conjunctions. It goes from or to and. We go back prior to creating prior to creation, prior to the distinction of genders, right? And so he is taking this argument about the law, which is not something we throw, we throw away the law as if, well, it doesn't matter anymore because we're Christians. The law is the Bible. That is the revealed word of God to Moses from Sinai. That is the thing that Jesus says, if you violate one jot or tittle, you're going to hell. If there is a hell, thank y'all. You know? <laughs> <laughs> that's, a, that's, that's what we're talking about here and that's why it's important because what Paul does is say look these Gentiles contrary to the law contrary to nature are included in the covenant not because what I say but because Jesus of Nazareth was stripped bare, whipped, and splayed naked, emasculated before the entire world, bleeding on a Roman cross, held up as a sign for you, as he says in 1 Corinthians. That's what he's talking about. So there is this, this deep sense in which all of this sexual ethics does come down to the cross, and it comes down to the covenant, but it also then comes down to a re-evaluation on Paul's part about what is written and how do you read. Yes. Um, it is it's a re-evaluation of that. <laughs> yeah, I want, I want to, there's three things that you said. It's all in, interesting, but I want to pick up three parts. One is your discussion of Romans 1. And nature, and then you went through the discussion of the law. And if I have time, I'll get to you. Galatians three twenty-eight. That was my dissertation. Okay, so now, cool. now, now we're in my <laughs> cool, cool. He's like, oh right, we're in my ring now. So, so the important part of Romans one, and, and, and we're not trying. I think it's important for you all to hear the argument. And so what I'm saying, and, and this is the reason why the nature point is in, is important, because when you hear people say it is unnatural, the way that gets translated into a lot of black preaching is that Paul thought that was nasty. And so when exactly. the, the, un, the unnatural it's language the, gets fact. translated as gross. But if my reading of Romans 1 is correct, and Paul is talking about the fall of humanity and our general move away from God, and that's the reason why the Gentiles are discussed, because like, how did the Gentiles become what the Gentiles are by the time you get to the first century? Paul says, you go all the way back to the creation, and you see man turning against God. And so Paul says that same-sex attraction is unnatural. He is saying it is a result of the fall. 
He's not saying that it's gross. He's saying that it's part of our human brokenness. And, one, and then he doesn't just end there. He turns to the people who are supposed to be different. In Romans chapter 2, he says, okay, we've talked about the Gentiles. Then let's go to the Jews. The Jews who should actually be different than the Gentiles are effect, in effect the same. Why are, they, why are they the same? Because Paul closes his argument in Romans chapter 3, because you're all under sin. And so his whole point from getting from Romans 1 all the way down to Romans 3 is that humanity is in fundamental rebellion against God that manifests itself in Gentile sinfulness and Jewish disobedience from the law. And so same-sex attraction does not stand out in Paul as an extra nasty manifestation of human sin. It is a manifestation of our, of our brokenness. Now, you can, you, can, you can think that that's wrong, but one of the things that I would say is that the argument, the argument that I think, I think that Paul is making is, is it possible to conceive of our, the, our sexual, the brokenness of our sexuality manifested as, as a result of the fall, or are certain aspects of our sexual expression not related to the fall, just how God would have made us had there been no fall? And so that's the, that's, that's the ultimate question. It really, it really comes down to the way that Paul's reading of Genesis 1 to 3 impacts our understanding of same-sex relationships. So that's part one, and, and I'll try to be quicker on the other two. Paul does say that I, I think that Paul's entire burden in, in both Romans and Galatians is not simply to say the Gentiles are included apart from the law, I mean in opposition to the law. His whole point is to say the law read correctly points towards the justification of Gentiles by faith. That's the whole reason for the Abrahamic argument. So he's not saying, are the law against the promises of God? He says, no. Genesis, which is actually a part of the law, testifies to the justification of the Gentiles by faith. And so I don't think that Paul's argument that the Gentile inclusion, which doesn't just include black people, it includes white people too, because they will be in the Gentile category. Oh, All non-Jews. So Paul's argument in, in Romans and Galatians, I think he's trying to say, is despite the way Jesus, let me put it this way, Jesus' Jesus's cross does cause him to read the Old Testament differently. And when he returns to the Old Testament in light of the cross, Absolutely. he's able to see the vision for the inclusion of the Gentiles that I missed before. But it's and, not and, the Old Testament. Yeah, That's the whole point. Uh, the Torah. He's, it's, no, it's the Bible. The Bible. There the Bible. is no other yes. Bible. Yes, yes. Right. the Bible. You know, what, what Paul is doing is theologically rethinking what he thinks about what the Bible says yes. in light, light of, of the, the cross. cross. Yes. Which is what we are called to do. We are theologically called to rethink what the Bible says in light of the cross. That's, that's the call, right? I, I just want to add, in, so in Paul's various contexts, because Romans is a context in itself, Galatians is a context in itself, sure. and so he reimagines all of these in these varying contexts. He's a reimaginative uh, thinker, preacher. And I think that part of what our job is, is to do that same thing, to reimagine, even in today's context, what we're reading in the Pauline text. So I, I, I still think that we're missing the overarching question of how do we even read these texts without saying, and so this is bad, this is bad, this is bad, but how do we reread re these texts so that we reimagine in our present context what liberation looks like, what relationality looks like, what mutual relationality looks like with consenting folks who are of grown age to do whatever they want to do. That's, I think, part of the problem that we're missing. 
I think it's not in the person of white patriarchy, first and foremost. Reimagining and, re and really shedding the vestiges of white patriarchy is the first step. I mean, for me personally, I know that painful process continues to be an ongoing process as I reread Paul all the time. Mm -hmm. Beyond that, though, I think that the conversation has to be done away from this binary of just beating and lambasting upon people who may be same sex. There are heterosexual dysfunctionality right, that yeah. is just as aberrant yeah. As, yeah. As, as at all. And so I want to expand it just to yeah, where, yeah. even if we do come I down agree. to just the same sex components and, right. and how that is wreaking havoc and dividing churches and, and causing African churches to say, we ain't got nothing to do with the American church and all this other, even though that is the conversation, we have not adequately dealt with the fact that the dysfunction yeah. embedded in our church, even amongst heterosexual couples yeah. and the coupling of them, has not been added. And I think Paul is really trying to hone in on that, too. Or, hey, so I, I've only asked one question, y'all. <laughs> we are off on the road. Only one question, my Lord, have I asked. Amen. <laughs> so let's just take, no, no, let's just take a breath for a minute. Let, let that sit, resonate, process, digest. Amen. Amen. All right. But you guys are bringing up some major points and some really helpful points. So I'm going to transition, just going in with the conversation. And this is from an audience member, but is, um, is there a reason to believe that Jesus and Paul have different views on sexual relationships? Hmm. I think, um, sorry, is this microphone on? Yeah, yeah. Um, <laughs> I think one of, my, one of my favorite Jesus passages, and I th actually think... Um, it impacts my entire hermeneutic is and, and this actually is not about divorce so if, you, if you're this is not about divorce I'm talking about this hermeneutical method okay so don't hear me talking about the divorce part so if it's emotionally possible listen to what Jesus does rhetorically so they come up to Jesus and they ask Jesus well is it okay for a man to divorce his wife for any reason and so they wanted Jesus to kind of take a side on different interpretive options of how you read Deuteronomy. Because Deuteronomy has these passages, these scenarios in which you can have a divorce. And Jesus says, rather than engaging on what the law allows, right, he doesn't go in that direction. He says, he goes back to Genesis. He said, in the beginning, he made the man and woman. He goes to God's creational intent. And then he said, for the, so, so what he does is, and then he said, they shall not become two but one. What God has joined together, let no man tear asunder. And so when he's asked the question about divorce, he doesn't get into the minutia of under what circumstances is this good or bad. He wants to present to his people a vision for healthy human relationships. And what does he do? He goes to Genesis and he reads the, 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 the two creation stories together as if they refer to a, the same God in a way that's coherent. He, he reads Genesis 1 and 2 together and he says, the, these two texts speak of man and woman together being fruitful and multiplying as a manifestation of God's will. And if that's the case, then Jesus is reading the creation story as his beginning point for understanding man and woman in the same way that Paul is reading Romans, I mean, Genesis 1 as the beginning, Genesis 1 to 3 is the beginning of his understanding of human relationships. I see what you did. So I do think that both Paul and Jesus are be, begin their reason, reasoning about human sexuality around the creation story. Now, I would say what Jesus does that goes beyond what Paul hints at, and we talk about mutuality. But what, what Jesus does that I think is particularly unique is in his discussions about human lust. And he says, when your eye causes you to sin, cut it out. And the reason that is important is because he doesn't put the onus on the female right. not to cause the man to sin. Right. He actually says, you pull yourself together. Yeah, yeah. Bro, get it together. So, yeah. so, he does, so Paul hints at this, right? Where he, where he, he, he says that, you know, your body's not your own and, you know, you should not exploit one another. He gets at it. But Jesus, in a very explicit way, talks 
about the potential. Well, he actually articulates a view of human lust that puts the onus on the male to exercise some self-control in a way that's implicit in Paul, but not explicit. Particularly in a way where the rights of women were suppressed in so many different ways mm -hmm. to where they had no agency. And so, and I think those which, two instances... Which goes beyond... Well, we won't go into how far. It goes beyond um, some of the requirements in the Torah as it relates mm -hmm. to um, se sexual assault and those kinds of things. But that's a much larger, larger conversation. Yeah. Yeah. So here's what I wanted to say. I, I agree with you on, on that, those passages from Jesus. I think those are excellent choices. Um, and uh, your professors are probably extraordinarily proud of you, doctor. <laughs> and I don't mean that to be condescending yeah. at all. I mean, those, yeah. are the, those, are, those are absolute passages I would go to. I wonder, though, how we read the Samaritan text in light of that. How, because here, and this is not a sexual ethics text. This yeah, is a sure. text about an enemy of the Jewish people. Mm -hmm. Someone who is a, a, a um, not not a, uh, just somebody unclean, that we often t preach the Samaritan text as though he's unclean. He's an enemy. He's somebody who would wage war against the Jewish people. There's a history of war between these nations. And, and one of my colleagues goes up to Jesus and asks, you know, what, you know about the, the law, what does it say? And Jesus says, well, what is it written? How do you read it? And he says, you know, do this. And, well, who is my neighbor? And Jesus ends with the story with who was the neighbor? Go and do that. Go and do likewise, right? So there is a sense in which for Jesus, ethics are about how you live out the law, not who does it, right? How you live out the law. And so it's, not so it's not simply about the created order. It's that anyone, even the Samaritan, can live out the law, even though the Jewish person could not have imagined the enemy of Judaism to be somebody able to fulfill the law. Then he cannot change his Samaritanness, right? He is a Samaritan ontologically. But he is still living out the requirements of the law. And so we get to what is the heart of the law and the prophets for Jesus. What's the heart of the law and the prophets? Love God. Love your neighbors as yourself. What does that look like? Now, I do think Paul and Jesus would have agreed on those issues also. How they work it out might be very different because Jesus does almost no ministry to Gentiles, and Paul is doing almost exclusively ministry to Gentiles. Um, third thing I want to raise and put on the table, and we can talk about it. We've talked a lot about creation and the creation story in Genesis, and that is, I think, one of Paul's and Jesus' theological sources. The problem I find is when we take the creation narrative and make it biologically true. And this is, this is where we find ourselves in an existential crisis in the 21st century. Because we no longer just have as a source the, the revealed texts of what we Christians call the Bible. We also have as sources of knowledge and as things we know and things we know why we know, science and knowledge of the entire created order. So then when Paul says something is against nature, he may well be referring to Genesis. Although in Genesis it says nothing about women having long hair um, and men having short hair. But 
If that is the case, then how do we as 21st century persons informed by a scientific reality that shows us that in the entire biological world, there is same-sex attractiveness. Not just in humanity. And we can argue, oh, the fall made everybody do that. But I mean, it, I think it's a little trite to just go to Genesis and say, well, the fall made everybody do that. Because in fact, we don't know that. Paul is making that as a theological argument, right? But we don't know that. And we do know about the, the um, complete diversity of sexual expression across the entire created order. So then how do we as Christians wrestle with this text that we have been bequeathed into which God has spoken God's truth, but also into which human beings have written from their cultural norms and their own first century understandings of biology, where a human male injects a humunculus into a female. And there is nothing that a woman gives but the place to sow the seed. How do we as human beings who know, know differently, who know about ovum and sperm and, and, and the way that fertilization actually happens biologically, right? How then do we address this katafusin, this, this against nature that Paul keeps arguing? You know, because that, that, that for me is really a, yeah. a, a crisis. That's, that's an important question. There's, there's two things I want, I want to say. First is, I've been, like, you said something, like, earlier that I think we kind of missed, is when you spoke about, was it Dugelaton? Mm -hmm. um, and the musical gifts that he gave to the church. I would think that, um, I, just, I just feel like that was an important part, and I think this needs to be heard in this context. Sure. I'll say two things about it. One is, there's this, there's this thing in Christianity called common grace where all of us have this ability, believer or non-believer, to create beauty. But the other thing is that, like, God's within the, if, if perfect sanctification, assuming, like, what I understand is sanctification to be correct, but assuming, the idea that perfect sanctification is a prerequisite for God using you would just, like, invalidate most church ministries. <laughs> um, but, but, I, but I do want, so I just wanted to, like, affirm that, that I don't believe that God says that because someone is gay or lesbian that they don't have gifts that that's just like i don't i don't i don't understand things that way but i would say the important part is you relate and this the biology question is really important but i think what i would begin to say if, if someone kind of looked at genesis differently than i do i would say the following we all acknowledge that there's parts of us that are manifestations of human brokenness. So we're going to die. And we feel like God's creational intent isn't for us to die, but for us to live in forever. So the resurrection will affect some change in our person such that our bodies are different. We also recognize that there's something wrong with our minds, that our thoughts are in some ways not what God intended. And so even if you say that our understanding of Genesis is, is, is rooted in a kind of pre-scientific worldview, the idea that Genesis is trying to articulate that there's something that's gone wrong in humanity is something that we can affirm. Now, the question becomes then, well, how do you determine what that wrongness is? Correct. Now, so then is it simply, and, and if and the argument was simply, we haven't gone there, um, this idea that... Um, it's only in the Genesis text that we get this idea about 
and I, I think this will hopefully be the last question we answer on it. It's the only place where we get to same-sex relationships. It's, that's not actually where it is. It's where Paul led us if we're going to let Romans 1 be the beginning. But if Ephesians 5 begins to understand how we do it, then we'll look at um, the relationship between God and Israel and Christ and the church and Christ's sacrificial love for his bride is un- helping us understand. So there's other places where we can go if create... So it's not simply... God said he created Adam and Eve, Adam and Eve, and that's just the end of it. But it's more the consistent witness throughout the canon to these relationships, healthy and unhealthy, as pointing towards something that the church eventually comes to the conclusion of by the time you get to Paul and the book of Revelation as man and woman married, reflecting something of God's love for the church. Or why would he use the metaphors for him and his bride? Yeah, so like, I mean, and so you cannot find those things persuasive, but but at least it's an understanding of why we kind of come to these positions. It's my, it's one of my, this is what I would say, and I'll I'll, I'll leave it alone. One of the things that um, is helpful for me is like when God actually disagrees with me. And so emotionally, I'm not committed to this position. So, like, it's not that I would say, like, I'm emotionally opposed to same-sex relationships, and I find it easy to find God to justify it. It's much easier for me to live as a New Testament scholar and to say, and emotionally to say, this is what the society is doing. It's easy for me to go along these ways. But I feel in some sense constrained by my best readings of the text from Genesis to Revelation to come to this. And so what I'm trying to do as best as I can is to articulate that in a way that does the least amount of damage to people who disagree. And I may, I may do that in, incorrectly, but that's at least what I feel somewhat compelled to do because like we're all clergy and we all take vows to do the best we can. And that's what I think we're trying to argue. And it's not just Genesis. It's reading the entire con- canon and coming to these conclusions and trying to articulate them as terribly as I can. To, to that so, point, to that point is this. I think that there's... No, that's all right. That's all right. I'm thinking though about... So you brought up Ephesians, and so that made me think yeah. about the Deutero, uh, Deutero-Pauline text. Yeah, sure, and so sure. I'm, I'm, I have to... Could you explain Deutero-Pauline? Yeah, I'm the, yeah I'll get there. Deutero-Pauline. So um, earlier, Dr. Amer made the statement about the seven authentic letters of Paul, the letters that we are pretty sure Paul wrote. When I say Deutero-Pauline, I'm talking about the letters that we are unsure that Paul wrote. And so this is where I really do believe that context becomes important. And that's, that's why I brought up the Arapakis for Romans 1, because I'm not sure that it's just about creation. I think there's something about the Roman imperial context that Paul is talking about in Romans 1 that does lead him to the arguments that you get to in 3 and 4. But uh, beyond that, when we look at 1 Timothy, 2 Timothy, Titus, Ephesians, Colossians, and we see that the writer of those texts reaffirms some platonic household codes that say that put this idea of the man over the wife, the wife over the children, and slave obey your master. And so you get this language that reaffirms for the church that was waiting for Jesus to come back immediately when, when Jesus doesn't come back immediately and you're undergoing perhaps persecution by a Roman empire, you have to show that you are not threatening. So I still have to to kind of question how those household codes come about and the argument that they are the the good ways for for folks to be, which then takes me back to 
patriarchy, and I'm still going to say white patriarchal power because that's the same power that then reads these texts and says, as African Americans, you're not doing what we're seeing in Ephesians and Colossians, and so you have to get on track and become respectable. So I, I can't divorce all of that information from what we're talking about today regarding healthy sexual relationships, that I still think it's problematic to just look at these texts and say, so this is what it is from Genesis to Revelation, and this is what we should think about for healthy sexual relationships, but we should have a conversation about what it looks like in our faith communities, because Paul is having these conversations in his faith communities, and we don't know if he won the day in his faith communities. We are reading half of a mailbox. We're reading half of a letter. We don't know what's happening in the communities on the ground. So I think that as folks who are trying to work out your salvation and your understanding of God and your Christianity and your walk, that people who are going to, to think critically about these texts are going to have conversations in your faith community and read as a faith community these texts and build your, your hermeneutic that way instead of thinking more fundamental or literalist about can some I, of these things. It is problematic. If I mean, let's say, you know, the household codes and whether you want to see the, the pater potestis as a benevolent type of patriarchy or not. I you think want to explain what the household codes are? The household codes are this Greco-Roman construct. Thank you. She's a wonderful. See, look, oh, at, see, look at she this, this one you're a senior, a, a, a senior, a senior scholar. It's like, make it plain. Make it plain. All these New Testament classes talking to way. each other and not talking to y'all. It's a good way for Christians to go along to get along. And so if you go ahead and have this very stratified fathers, wives, or male, male head leadership, wives, slaves, and children, they, you are all supposed to get in line. First Peter has one, Colossians has one, Ephesians has one. These are all famous uh, uh, texts that all display this, this very Greco-Roman ethic. And so there, it, is, it is this sense of re reifying a very clear-cut and scripted type of way in which Christians were to line up, to queue up, if you will, behind the, 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 the inimical patriarch whether he was benevolent or not, because in Peter, he was not very, he was not very benevolent. That's right. And so, and so th there's this, there's, it's problematized because you're trying to figure out, well, if I'm deriving my ethic, my sexual ethic, and he could just have any old kind of way he's want, that's, that's a problem. Mm -hmm. And that's an abuse of power. And, and it, and if it's formulating our ethic and it's saying, you know, Betsy Bauman, she had that article about how somebody came to her and, uh, she heard, and it was in the San Francisco newspaper about how, you know, um, she had a, a parishioner came to her pastor said last night my husband threw a tricycle and beat me over the head with it and his advice to her was you know well he's the head of the household go back and be a better wife i mean i was like are you kidding me are you are you crazy but it's problematic if we're taking some of these things and we're not asking the question but that's for us to have this debate what yeah. they want to know is they want to know what does this have to do with how i carry out my sexuality can, can I, can and I, does he have can, can I, he just come home and get what he wants when he wants it can i well, say can i say well, something about the household code particularly for the, a hetero kind of thing I, I think i think and once again we would love we would love for paul and this is where i think that Angela is correct. We would love for Paul to speak to our day and to our context in a way that's intelligible to us. But he doesn't. And we wish when we read Paul's letters, like, oh, I wish he had said this instead of that. But he doesn't. 
The question is, what do we have in front of us and how we read what we have in front of us in light of what his imaginative world was and how does that affect how we then appropriate him? Mm -hmm. I think in I, conversation yeah, with our world yeah, today. In conversation, <laughs> yeah, it doesn't mean how we appropriate him. So what I would say is that what Paul does is he looks at the Greco-Roman structure and he re reads it in light of the cross. And he begins his discussion with, with the first verse that begins the household codes in, in Ephesians is submit to one another. So this idea of mutual submission, which does not exist in the Greco-Roman world, the idea that the husband submits to, his, to the wife doesn't exist. He didn't have to tell the wife to submit to the husband. That was a given in but the culture. he does do, though. Yes, but he does he after having emptied it of his power, and he... he Is he, that a true emptying of his power, well, though? It's, it's easy. Yeah, <laughs> That's the saying. question. Well, if, 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 if it is Christological, and, and the idea that the husband's... And by the way... I won't, I won't actually get into that. I'll say it this way. It's Christological in the sense that the, the husband's authority is not simply Christological, Christ in his power, but Christ in his weakness who served. And he uses the language of washing. And the washing language is important because it's not simply an image of baptism. Washing was woman's work in that, in that world. The idea that a man would wash his wife in that, in that context was radical. And so I'm not saying that Paul says everything we need to say. What I'm saying is that Paul's language of submission and the idea that the husband's job is to serve his wife in the same way that Christ emptied himself of his power by dying on the cross as the paradigm. Now, of course, you can say men never actualize that. But the truth is we never actually the entirety of the New Testament speaks about what is possible like the fruit of the spirit. He gives this great vision of the fruit of the spirit in Galatians and ain't none of us doing it. <laughs> which is why, which is why he says right after that, be careful if you bite and devour one another because he knows that what he just said about um, um, in five may not be actualized by six. And so yes, it is easy to read Paul's language about the man emptying himself of his power that he already had and serving and washing his wife as an image of marriage, as a cynical ploy of reinstituting power. You can say that. But, but, but Doc, yeah. but yeah. Doc, I have a question. Go ahead. Sorry. <laughs> if I am an enslaved girl child, yes. hold on. Yes. If I'm an enslaved girl child, whom do I obey? My father, my husband, or my master, if they all disagree with each other and still remain a Christian. I think this is Romans, I'm sorry, I think this is 1 Corinthians 7. No, this sorry. is Ephesians. No, no, no. I think this I, is Ephesians. No, no, no. Yes, we're not yes. going to get back to 1 Corinthians yes, 7. No, no. We're going to stay right with Ephesians yes. for a second. Because that is, that, that is the dilemma that the enslaved woman finds herself in in the household codes. In case you haven't figured out yet, they haven't actually explicitly said this, but the household codes is where you get slaves obey your masters, yes. right. wives obey your husbands, right. husbands love your wives, whatever that looks like in the first century Roman world, okay? Now, I also need to say that in the first century Roman world, slavery included whips, chains, branding, it included chain gangs. It included families being separated from their children, people being malnourished, sleeping on the ground, wearing poor clothes, not having enough to eat and dying before they were 40. So in case you think, because I've heard this from the pulpit before, that slavery in, in the Roman world wasn't as bad as it was here, the only difference 
between slavery in the Roman world and slavery in this world was color. Now, if you are an enslaved woman, an enslaved woman of marriageable age, which is to say you have had your period, you are pubescent. You already may have been raped by your master. Slaves obey your master. You have maybe the right to marry because the slave masters did like to do that. It kept you settled. Hmm? Whom do you obey? And I want us to stay there for a second. I want us to put our finger where it hurts. Because the fact is, we as a black church, both here and in the Caribbean, we dealt with slaves obey your master. We simply ignored it. And we said, God didn't say that. And Howard Thurman's grandmother said, don't read me, Paul. Because I promised myself, if ever I got free and could read for myself, I would never again read Paul. But Renita Weems reminds us that we do that for enslaved people, but not for women. We are perfectly happy for the wife to stay in the same place she was in the first century world, even reimagined through the Christological understanding of husbands as Christ. Because in fact, in staying in that place, we ignore the way in which, despite all of that flowery language, you still haven't set me free. You still haven't set me free. So you can talk about how much you love me, but your foot is still on my neck. And I still can't breathe. See what I'm saying? So we have to think critically about how we read these texts. So we, if that text is a manifestation of the cross, it's a problematic manifestation of the cross. The Petrine author is saying that slaves manifest um, the, 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 suffering, the suffering servant is a problematic theological construction of enslavement. I don't want you to tell me I'm mimicking Jesus because I'm a slave. Now, I understand that right into this community, they had no choice. These are what I call the Jim Crow texts. And I call them the Jim Crow texts because these are the texts of the church that felt like if I did anything else, I would be killed or my kids would be killed. So you know what we did in Jim Crow, right? If you saw the white person coming on the sidewalk, you snatched your kid off the sidewalk. Kid not doing anything wrong. You're keeping him alive. These texts were put in place to keep the church alive, to survive to the next generation. And there are some who agree with that dude from the Black Panther who says, bury me in, my in the sea with the ancestors. But in fact, he's wrong because the ancestors didn't end up in the sea. The ancestors survived. So I understand why those texts are there. But to then take those texts and say, here is an example of Christian marriage, is problematic. It's deeply problematic. Esau, before you respond, no, I just no, want no, to no, I I I remind the audience really fast that pigeonhole, I only have two questions from you guys, so please make sure that you update <laughs> your questions uh, to the audience. So no, actually, I don't think, I think, um, I don't, I mean, Obviously, there are responses that you can, you can make. But sometimes I think it's really important to allow the weight of what she said just to actually sit there. Because the, the enslaved woman, and 
it had a uniquely, well, I shouldn't say that because men were raped too um, in the Greco-Roman. But, but, but the idea of the enslaved woman dealing with the, the reality of sexual assault is important. And we, when we think about slaves, we tend to think about men. So her critique is important and needs to be heard. And so I don't want to, there there's not a rhetorical way to make slavery less bad. And so there's, 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 but what, what, I, what, what I would want to say is we do have some examples of texts that are being read. Now, hear me when I'm trying to, I'll just say it and then you guys can misinterpret if you want to. Um, there, there, there are two texts that we know that were paradigmatic um, in the Second Temple period. One is the book of Daniel mm -hmm. that was being read as something that was very important to, for the Jews understanding what it was like to be under Rome. Another example of Jews under slavery that was paradigmatic is the story of Joseph. And in both of those cases, Joseph and Daniel and Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego found themselves under slavery and who recognized they had no means of gaining their freedom. Mm -hmm. And so they were at the complete whim of their masters. Mm -hmm. But what they did is that Daniel, sorry, Joseph, first of all, when he has Potiphar's wife sexually advancing him, he refuses and accepts the consequences. And so Joseph's submission was not acquiescence. Now, it could have ended in Joseph's assault and death, but submission for the Jews under slavery did not necessarily mean, if he's reading his Old Testament, we can't tell that Paul was, it doesn't necessarily mean that if a slave being submissive to your master, if you're a Christian, means the master wants to rape you and you say, yes, sir, as a manifestation of Christological humility. I don't think that that's what would have happened. Now, the real question is, which I don't know the answer to, is what do you do? What do you do if you are a Christian and you're trying, you're stuck in slavery and you're trying, because the reason I used the Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego and Daniel line to clear it up is that their witness was powerful because they obeyed God's law in the spite of overwhelming odds. That's what, that's what submission looked like as a Jew under the empire. So if you're looking at an Old Testament framework for understanding what does a slave do when he has no power, it is not actually abandoning God's standards. It's actually dealing with the consequences of that disobedience. So the real question actually comes to well, what happens if a woman has some sense of self and she is still nonetheless assaulted by her master, which is a question, interestingly enough, isn't addressed in the New Testament text. It is. What happens to the woman who is being raped? And I think, and the only reason I was referring to Romans, I mean, 1 Corinthians 7 was not to actually run away from Ephesians 5. It was that when Paul says, and this is what I think, I can't prove it. Um, when Paul says, if you, are, if you are a slave, don't worry about it. I don't think he means don't care about the fact no, that I you're in slavery. I think what he's saying, in particular, given the discussion of sexuality yeah. in that chapter, I think what he was saying to women who may have had this exact same concern, if I am being, it sounds, I hate talking, if I'm being sexually assaulted, am I morally culpable? Because I'm in slavery. Because part of the idea of getting, being free was that they will be free to serve God. Mm -hmm. And I think what Paul is saying is if you can't escape slavery, you are not morally culpable. And so we're footnoting, Roy Champa makes this argument in his discussion of, in his commentary on 1 Corinthians 15, no, 1 Corinthians 7, pillar commentary. So you can look this up, see it in detail. But I think he makes this compelling argument that Paul's point in Romans, sorry, 1 Corinthians 1, 7, it, 1 Corinthians 7, this is the idea that slaves who, because of their slavery, can't fully actualize their obedience are not seen as less than by God, which I think is important. So I could be wrong about that reading. I, I agree, but, but it still doesn't answer the question, and I think you're, you're right to sit with yeah. it. What does that girl do? Sometimes you how have to does sit that with girl, this. How does that girl live out the covenant? She's I mean, away to her Juneteenth, and so what is her Juneteenth? And that's what there, we... Yeah, that's, and, and as, and he, as and he well knows, for women... Women, slaves weren't, weren't emancipated. Yes. They died in slavery. Mm -hmm. 
Male slaves were set free at 30, which means to say they were used up and, and cast out. For five or six years before they died. Yep. Yes, for five or six years before they died. Mm -hmm. Women slaves were never emancipated, right? And yes. the Bible says, slaves obey your master. And likewise women. Oh, wait. Likewise? Likewise? Like what? Like enslaved people? We do need to question what this image of the household does to us when we look at it uncritically. Because it affects how we are with one another and how we raise our kids. Can I right? add something? I want to say that's the important part for me. For me, being an African-American woman growing up in Black Baptist Church and thinking that if I keep my legs closed and wear the proper dresses, go to church every Sunday, I'm going to find my husband who's going to wash, wash me in yeah. that Ephesians image. Mm. And that's what I want us to really think about. How some of our women in our churches are, are stifled from at least attempting to try to do their own work in the Lord, their own work in God without trying to just wait for a husband to come and wash us. And also how women who are told you need to submit, right? Who also are created imago dei, in the image of God, right? When Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life, you know what? Those are all feminine. I am she the way, I am she the truth, and I am she the life. Forgive Welcome. Me, oh, forgive me to jump into a... a, 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 a but, but how then do women sorry. who may be told to submit live out the call that they have on their lives when 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 they're told god calls them to do what god calls them to do oh but you got to submit to a man oh but you can't be ahead of a man oh you but you can't be in front of a man or oh, you can't be preaching in front of a man I, I i salute pastor Plifford. i've always known of his ministry he doesn't know me from eve but i've known of his ministry because i lived in this new neighborhood for years and the way in which he has held up women but that is not necessarily what's going on in ephesians and when you get to Timothy, it gets worse because when you get to Timothy, now I'm going to be saved by childbearing. Mm -hmm. Heads up, I'm an adoptive mother because I went through an early menopause. So am I not saved then because I can't bear a child? What do we do with barrenness among African-American women in light of these texts? And, and the reason I, I'm going to all of these problematic instances is, look, if these instances really do cause us to squirm, then we need to go back and look at Romans 1 again and ask ourselves if we know in our gut, even though we don't want to say it because it's a Bible, that, that something about that's not right, then maybe, just maybe, we may not, Paul may not have fully understood how God's creation worked. Maybe. Maybe Genesis doesn't tell the whole story. Maybe one chapter of Genesis does not and cannot possibly incorporate the miracle 
that God, the almighty, omniscient, omnipresent God was able to do in the creative order things that we have yet to understand. Maybe, just maybe. Dr. Amer, there's a question that responds to you from the audience and they ask, what about um, Pauline's sexual ethic does he get right? Good question. Here's one, one thing I think he gets right. In the, in, in the Corinthian church, there's a, there's a desire for really high piety. They really want to be pious. They really want to be good. But they want to be pious so much that they're now saying, well, my piety is more pious than your piety, and your piety is more pious. Because, you know, that never happens in the church. And, and Paul says, one of the ways in which they're living out that piety is by restraining themselves from sexual intimacy as committed married couples. So these are people who have already committed to be human sexual partners for life. Now, we can talk about the way marriage works in the ancient world, parentheses. And Paul says, no, 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 you don't, you don't deny your partner on behalf of your own spirituality. If you want to deny yourself spirituality, be celibate. But don't deny your partner because you think that's going to make you right with God. Because your body doesn't belong to you, it belongs to your partner. It doesn't belong to a per person, it belongs to your person. Right? It doesn't belong to a man, it belongs to your man. <laughs> and your body belongs not to a woman, but to your woman. Right? I think Paul gets that right. Because what he is saying there is, look. You are for one another. You are in a mutual relationship in that sense. And I, I agree with him on mutuality. I think he's absolutely right on mutuality. Um, but I think there's a lot of stuff that he does that reflects his context. Just like we do a lot of things that reflect ours. Well, due to timing, we only have 10 minutes left. So all panelists get ready to respond to this question from the audience. If you were to reimagine Paul's words for the church today, what would you say? We jump. So I think it's staying in um, 1 Corinthians 7 as well. It talks about this, this desire to marry. Uh, you should marry instead of burning. And I think that in the world pervaded by the Corinthian church where, you know, I think the identity of the men who maybe out of constraint because they want to fulfill their role in society, they really didn't have a, a position about, they may not even want to desire marriage. They were, there was almost this sense of like, I need to marry a woman because I need to procreate. I need to have a child. I think that in our hypersexualized world, that marriage should not be the horse pulling the cart. I mean, sex should not be the horse pulling the cart, but unfortunately it is. People are saying to themselves, in my estimation, that because I can't keep my sexuality in check, I just go ahead, go ahead and do this. Whether or not I like the person or not, it, it just seems as though this is what Paul says is prescriptive, and so I'm going to do it. That I, have seen that in, I have seen that have so many devastating effects amongst people of faith, confessional people, who have been, who have been completely um, uh, devastated because their marriage failed, because it was only built upon uh, the sexual act. So I think what we need to do is we need to do a better job of really kind of moving beyond just that physical bond because it's a powerful bond, 
right? I think in, it was in Vanilla Sky, Cameron Diaz says this thing. He says, no matter, you know, when you, when you have sex with someone, it makes a promise even if you didn't. And so there's this sense that, you know, you can't, you can't diminish it, but in this hypersexualized world, it is, it is in the driver's seat, it's in pole position, compelling people to make choices that they are now, that they haven't been, they haven't exercised any kind of sobriety about. They're not sober in that, they're just jumping into it in that sense. And I've seen that, I'm speaking from my context mm -hmm. and from students who have come and they want to ring by spring. Right, and they want to get married because I'm. That's a moody. <laughs> That's a moody. Some thing. of these folks ain't thinking about a ring yet. Yeah, <laughs> but, but but I think, and, and particularly in our context too. All right, I mean, I'm tired of the black body. I'm the black female body being um, being the, the 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 repository of graffiti and mm -hmm. and being sexualized, hypersexualized. Um, I'm tired of that. I'm really I'm really quite tired of that. And it's a, it, there's 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 a bit of um, there's an unhealthy spiral. There's an unhealthy kind of, you know, s spiral that seems to go out of control in that sense. I think I think the gospel is always articulated in culture, and I think that what you said earlier about looking at some of these Texas Jim Crow um, legislation to help people under the thumb of the empire is important, mm -hmm. because although I think, and I and I, I I'm convinced. I'm as convinced as you can be. I'm going to be tentative. That's, that's the theme of the conference. Um, tentative, whatever, epistemic humility. Okay, we're fine. Um, I, I think you can make a strong case that for women in ministry, even in Paul's letters, I think that that case can be there for the preaching ministry of women especially. Um, but I do think that um, there's one thing for Paul to articulate his vision for the family, which I think you can still get to a healthy place, but you've got to explain it to people so they don't hear it wrong. But I think it's one thing for Paul to talk about women and the family the way that he does in the context of the Greco-Roman Empire when, when the Christians are, are the minority right. to the responsibilities of a Christian majority. So what happens, what happens is that the slaves submit to your master becomes the language of an entire empire right. instead of the survival of a minority group. And so what the Christian, I think, has to think through is what is the response? How do you appropriate Paul when you're not the minority? Right. And we are the majority in the power in this country. And on the other side of what we now know about sexual assault and sexual abuse, how do we articulate what Paul says? And I still think that Paul's language of mutuality is important, and I think that I submit to my wife and she submits to me. But if that's not the language that the culture hears, how do you talk about that theological idea in a way that is helpful, that doesn't come with the baggage of its misuse? So I think that I'm not sure that Paul would I, I – actually, I do think some things Paul would say differently if he knows that he has you – know, you know, democracy – you can vote stuff in. Right. So I think, I think that you would get him articulating things differently. I think I'm, I'm convinced that if Paul had the imaginative world with the cross and a democracy, he'd say Christians be abolitionist, mm -hmm. no doubt. So I do think that you have to sometimes do the work of not setting Paul aside, but rethinking mm -hmm. what Paul would articulate given what we think about scripture in light of the differences in our culture and his. Let me add, not necessarily to that, but the original question was, what would we want Paul to write for a sexual ethic today? Yeah, how, so, would we how would we reimagine for Paul? I think um, probably two things. The first thing, that passage in 1 Corinthians that talks about if you have an unbelieving spouse and uh, they leave, you stay, remain, remain unmarried until your spouse returns or something like that. And... I just always remember I I had an
had abuse and I left. And so that was always preached to me that I was never supposed to remarry. I was never supposed to remarry. He put a ring on it. That's the first one. But the second one that I'm sitting with, especially when I opened thinking about my own student who was transitioning, there needs to be something reimagined in Paul about how black church responds to the death of trans women of color. Amen. We haven't touched on that at all. Not at all. And I think that's a sexuality issue because you have folks who are making a decision to, to transition. And they're the now, the least of these that are dying and nobody cares. And the church isn't the safest place. And they and the are church our isn't children. The yes, they are our children. So there needs to be a reimagination in Pauline's sexual ethics about what a response by the church looks like. I would say that if I were to sit down with Paul, I would say, brother, why not write, be cruciform to one another? Live, live in, in a manner that reminds yourself that every relationship you enter into must be considered through the lens of the cross of Jesus Christ and the way in which God raised up what Rome tried to tear down. Be cruciform with one another. So where the society goes to tear down your child, because your child does not fit the society's image of what a, quote, real man is supposed to be about. Remember that God raised up what Rome tore down. Where the society says you are Jezebel because you are a black woman, or your mammy, or your auntie, but you are anything but a fully realized human being of God. Remember to be cruciform with each other, believing in the God who raised up what Rome tried to tear down. Where the society says your relationship is not real because you're a single father or you're a single mother. You, you don't have any real worth. Be cruciform with one another. Build up what the society wants to tear down. When the society says there's no such thing as black marriage, be cruciform with one another. Build up. What this, what, well, remember that God raised from the dead what Rome tried to tear down. And that's the thing I love about Paul. He never says Jesus got up. I hate to, I'm sorry, I just bothered somebody's hoop for Sunday. But he doesn't say, he got up! <laughs> he says, God raised him. Rome tried to tear him down and God raised him. That there is nothing that Rome can tear down that God cannot raise. And, and that means every part of the created order. Every part of the created order. So 
you're walking in your truth as somebody who's transgender. And the society is saying, you are anything but human. You are something whose death is not worth remarking on. I got so angry yesterday. I'm sorry, y'all. I was watching the news. And it was, the news was saying, there was a police shooting yesterday. And a man is on the loose because he shot a cop. He's also murdered his girlfriend. And he shot a cop. I'm like, wait, 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 wait. You just buried the lead. He killed a woman. He's on the run because he killed a woman. He shot a cop because he's a murderer. But her death was immaterial to the news. Paul, if I say, Paul, brother, if you write to the church today, be cruciform with one another. Raise her up. She whom the empire has dragged down, raise her up. See her. That's what I would want Paul to say to the church today. Amen. Well, we're out of time, unfortunately. So if you will join me in thanking our panelists. Thank you so much for listening to another episode of the Jew 3 Project podcast. I hope you enjoyed this episode. You can tune into all our past episodes at www.jew3project.com. You can subscribe on iTunes, Stitcher, Google Play. Remember not only to subscribe, but also rate us. That helps us to gauge how we're doing and how you're enjoying the show. And it gives other listeners some ideas about the show as well. So thank you so much for tuning in. Also, remember, we have our Bible engagement app in partnership with Back to the Bible to help you get better engaged in the Bible every single day. You take a survey, it assesses your strengths and weaknesses and sends you Bible verses based on those. So it's a great app. You can download the app by searching in your app store or Google Play, searching Jew 3 Project, and it'll be right there for you. So thank you again. Remember, if you would like to become a monthly partner or a one-time giver, you can do so on our website or by mail. Just go to Jew3Project.com, hit that donate tab, and you'll see the option to mail in a gift or give online. We appreciate you, and I'm so, so thankful for you. God bless, and remember, here at the Jew3 Project, we're helping you to know what you believe and why you believe it.